Hello, everyone. We're talking with Bill Jennings, who is a senior director at Delta Consulting Group. Uh, hello, Bill. How are you? I'm great, Hernan. Good to see you again. Nice to see you as well. Uh, so your expertise, uh, or one of them anyway, is in fraud and forensics. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. I spent 40, <laughs> 40 years doing that. So... Absolutely. Yes, I know that you have an extensive background when it comes to these topics and, and compliance and, and government uh, regulations and so on. So let's hone in on this piece in terms of the fraud and forensics aspect of your background. And what are some of the things that are happening in that space that internal auditors and compliance professionals should be on the lookout for? What's happening? You know, I think um, fraud is fraud. It, you know, it takes different forms. Um, in, interestingly, I <laughs> I, I told you about this um, conference I was at last week, the White Collar Crime Institute Miami. There was a man there who I put in prison 20 years ago. Um, oh. and he was an executive at MCI and um, was engaged in a rather massive um, lending fraud. Um, and, and of course, we don't have time to talk through all of it. But interestingly, he's got a company now that he calls Prisonology, where he... Um, you, you might think of it as sort of the real world um, um, manifestation of that movie. Uh, I think it was called Get Hard, where Will Ferrell was going to prison as a white collar criminal and uh, Kevin Hart was preparing him. So that's what this guy guy does now. And he, he's actually very good at it. But interestingly, he was talking about um, FTX. And, and this uh -huh. is a guy who knows, right? He's a, he is a, a very, um, you know, experienced fraudster himself. And he said, you know, the government keeps talking about this like it's something real, like something actually, you know, commercially viable actually happened. He said, it's a fraud. <laughs> so in that sense, fraud is is eternal. You know, it's it's getting someone to rely on a false representation that ultimately results in harm to them. And so that in that way, you know, the world is the same as it always was. But but the way, you know, the way that we lure people into relying on things has changed. And so um, what's happened is, you know, we're talking in an earlier segment about um, blockchain assets. So uh, it's obviously a very useful technology, a technology that um, uh, opens us up to infinite new opportunities in terms of human creation of intellectual property, but also exposes us to a new type of fraud. And so, right. um, you know, I think the, 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 the one thing that remains constant is fraud will occur wherever the opportunity exists. You know, they're all human beings are all looking for opportunities to exploit um, new areas to lure people into relying on things that are, are simply uh, not true. So, so when it comes to blockchain, one of the selling points of it is the fact that because of the, the way it's built, uh, you know, the blocks and, and, and how it's all connected, how it's uh, very limited opportunity, let's call it limited opportunity to make any changes to it. In some cases, people say you cannot make any change unless everybody agrees to it. With that and a few other safety measures built into the, the algorithms and the procedures, that that is virtually impossible to do. So, so what are some of the ways that people are getting around that to be able to engage in fraud anyway? 
There's a recent example <laughs> of a, a type of cryptocurrency, and I think it's, I, I may have the name wrong, but I believe it was called OneCoin. Okay. And uh, OneCoin uh, collapsed entirely, costing people uh, tens of millions of dollars. And the it may be hundreds of millions. Um, and the even the name OneCoin was a fraud because there wasn't even one coin. You know, so, so the, they just basically pretended to create this asset or this currency. They exactly. pretended to create it, collected money from people, but there was no intention of ever uh, falling up or, or or living up to the promises made. Yeah, because the, the thing is, is that blockchain, of course, um, is a, a tremendous tool to um, allow people to create um, currencies or securities, intellectual, you know, valuable intellectual property and protect it in a, in a totally unique way that's entirely verifiable. Um, and so that let's set that on one side. When was the last time you verified the blockchain um identifier for any digital asset when was the last time you did that i i, I guess uh, a lot of people will say that it's, it's a matter of trust to some extent right that you, you <laughs> exactly. hear about it and, and you say okay yes this this sounds feels legitimate <laughs> okay so so is that as along the same lines then of, a, of an individual who can who can take the assets, so even if they were going to create it, so we already put aside the example of someone who says they were going to, but they're never going to follow up on it, but those right. who did create it, and then they will take the money and siphon off the money or uh, engage in some kind of a Ponzi scheme type of an arrangement uh, where they take some money for their own use, but it doesn't get moved into the the, the, the the stakeholders' accounts like they should have been. So is, is these some examples of the types of fraud that are occurring? Yeah, this, this is as old as time. So this goes back to the right. beginning of my career. I, I The first thing, first fraud investigation I ever did was in 19, I think it was 1980. And it was a financial institution that engaged in a type of affinity fraud where they, when people would come to this country from Croatia, uh, the people who owned the financial institution were also from Croatia and they would get these people jobs. And the, um, in exchange for the people then depositing their money at the financial institution, everything rocked along fine. All of these people were engaged actually in the fishing industry. Until we got to the oil crisis in the late 1970s, and okay. the you know the the largest uh, raw material for the fisheries industry in terms of cost is fuel, diesel fuel, and so those right. diesel fuel prices went through the roof. Well, because all these people were in that industry, they came to the financial institution to withdraw the money, and it wasn't there. They believed it was there because they were sent statements every month showing that the money was there. And, you know, they relied on those and everything rocked along swimmingly as long as no one was trying to withdraw large amounts of money. Um, but then the, the, you know, the oil crisis uh, caused everyone to basically um, make a run on the bank and, and the cash was all gone because it had been stolen by the people who own the financial institution. Now, that sounds like an antiquated example, doesn't it? It sounds like 
Oh, gee, that's very quaint. That happened a hundred years ago when you know when Moses but was a young I, man. But I think that's to some forward extent what happened today. with FTX, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah, similar to what happened to today. Yeah. It's exactly the same mm-hmm. thing. All of those people yeah. believe the representations that were made in terms of digital statements produced by FTX regarding their digital assets. But in fact, mm-hmm. the you know those assets weren't there. They they had been. I mean, we don't know yet because the investigation hasn't been done. But they clearly were not available to the people who believe that they own them. So, so the, the point I'm trying to make is that the nature of fraud doesn't change. The opportunities change. And I think the new opportunity is in blockchain. Now, I think we're going to get better. You know, I think there are going to be easier, better methods to validate blockchain assets. But as of today, people are still being defrauded. Um, by, you know, what are relatively, um, you know, simple schemes, frankly. So, so, Bill, one of the questions that I have then, because you're right, and, and you know, before that we had Madoff, and I'm just kind of mentioning some of these very, very yeah. large uh, type of, of, of uh, frauds that took place over the last few decades. But then if we're looking at some of this, then uh, the process of confirmations, which is one of the control that you will expect, and, and then, of course, some kind of regulation and government oversight that will then review financial statements and verify that the assets are in fact where they are and they're valid as they, they claim they are. Do we see then that the government is starting to uh, oversee some of these things? And and but more importantly, let's let's talk about maybe not more importantly, but how about third parties? Do we have? Uh, are we seeing some kind of a mechanism emerging where we have the equivalent of the public accounting firms doing that kind of review to determine if those assets really exist and they are uh, held in a secure way? Yes, but um, what it lacks is general acceptance or regulatory, uh, you know, robust regulatory oversight. So on the regulatory Uh side, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier, the, the regulators are sort of waiting on Congress to create some definitions for these things, legal definitions that will allow them to, you know, more clearly exercise their regulatory authority. On the other side, there are a variety of certifications now available for people who would be auditors of blockchain assets. Um, but as far as I am aware at the moment, there's no general acceptance in terms of the curricula that are used or, or, or the or the principles that are being taught. You know, so it's it's a bit of a, you know, a, a crazy quilt at the moment. So there's I, I and there's no as far as I can tell, there's no, um, you know, um, Institute of Internal Auditors related to blockchain technology or, you know, any anything of that sort. So uh, we'll see. I mean, I think that's I think that's going to emerge, but it doesn't exist yet. And, and can I can I mention one other thing really quickly? A lot of the problem done it, it relates to human nature. So there are a couple of things at play. One is, and it's something I see in my work, do you know what people tell me when I show up to begin an investigation? This has happened every single time for the last 40 years. They always say, I'm sorry we have to meet under these circumstances. You know, and I often think, well, I, you know, I'm not because this is how I earn my living. 
But the next thing that they tell me is when I identify a subject or a target in an investigation and begin to ask questions about that person, I always get the same reaction from colleagues and coworkers. That person couldn't possibly be involved in anything like that. The, the most extreme example was a guy who um, there was a terrible accident at an engineering company in Minnesota that was owned by a French company. And the the guy who was the president uh, was killed. Uh, Bill, I need Bill. Let's let's take oh. a quick break, but don't lose okay. your train of All thought, right. because I really All want right. to hear about this. Yeah, but no, let's this take a short break. break and then when break. we come back, we'll talk about it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> Tired of trying to schedule your team's time around in-person learning? Isn't it a bummer to spend thousands of dollars on travel for professional development? What if we said you can save money and time and still provide your team with the best training possible? The answer to your woes is live online training from ACI Learning. With live online training, we provide our top in-person courses in private, online, instructor-led formats. You get to provide professional development in a manner that fits today's expectations. Entertaining, convenient, and effective. Our exam-aligned courses inspire the full potential of your team. Visit virtual instructor-led training at ACI Learning for more info. Welcome back, everyone. And Bill, uh, right before the break, you were telling us about an incident that occurred in Minnesota. So what happened there? Yeah, so um, th there was a, uh, a terrible um, accident where the uh, president of a French-owned engineering firm in Minnesota was killed, and they had to recruit and hire a replacement. And shortly after they hired the replacement, the, the company literally went off the rails. All of their financial results uh, turned down, and, you know, it was just a mess. And so they... Uh, wanted to find out, the French company wanted to find out what had happened. So they hired us to do an investigation, internal investigation. And the first thing we always do in a case like that is we identify any changes that have occurred. The obvious change was they hired this new president. And mm -hmm. if it's a personnel change like that, the first thing we do is a background check, which we did on this guy. And um, the background check revealed that none of the things that he put on his resume could be verified. The, the universities oh, wow. he said he attended had no record of him, said he had served in the U.S. military as a helicopter pilot. They had no record of him. So we stopped, you know, because we didn't want to waste the client's money and went to the general counsel and said, hey, <laughs> we think we've identified your problem. This guy is a fraud. He, you know, he none of his information checks out. And the general counsel said, that's impossible. I hear this a lot. <laughs> And we said, well, why is that impossible? Well, I personally verified some of the information. In fact, um, there was a History Channel episode about uh, helicopter pilots, Army helicopter pilots who flew in Vietnam. And a number of the people here saw him in that History Channel episode and told me about it. Oh, well, okay, well, you know, oh, wow. we could be wrong. Who told you that? So he tells us, we go interview those people, and they all said the same thing. Oh, yeah, he paid us to tell people that. We were wondering when somebody was going to come asking about it. So the, the point that I'm making is that all of us, all human beings have this, you know, we're herd animals. So we have this 
this this sort of internal bias that says, what does it say about me as a person if I have a colleague who is a criminal? I mean, that that's basically it. You know, what 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 terrible thing does that say about me if I have a colleague who's a criminal and I'm associated with that person? So that's the mm-hmm. first thing that happens. The other thing that happens is we have this strange bias to avoid recognizing errors when we make them. So we will make a decision and then the the decision goes badly. And instead of recognizing that and stopping and and taking a different action, we double down. We invest more in the Mm -hmm. bad decision and then it gets worse. And and, and this incidentally um, accounts for a lot of financial statement fraud. You know, that's where it all starts. I mean, I I heard uh, the guy who was uh, an audit committee member or a, a board member, I guess, when the Mercury Finance thing happened. And, 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 you know, of course, that was a massive audit failure. It was Anderson, Arthur Anderson client. Um, and it all started because they were going to miss the quarterly earnings number that the CEO had given to Wall Street. By a million dollars. You know, it was a relatively small amount of money. And the CFO, who had a child with health problems that were so severe that he was concerned that if he ever lost his job, he'd never be able to replace the health insurance coverage. And so he wanted, you know, in every way possible to please the CEO. So he comes to the CEO and says, we're not going to make it. We're short a million dollars. And the CEO says, that's the wrong answer. And yeah, so the guy make it somehow, yeah, the guy goes and makes an you know topside entry, and he he kept incidentally a list of the topside entries in his desk drawer. <laughs> I don't I don't know why people do this; they keep records of their criminal conduct. But anyway, I'm certain. Well, sometimes, well, sometimes they're trying. Sometimes they're trying to keep their their story straight because you know maybe next quarter right. they'll have to come back and make another adjustment and the following one. So they have to keep track of the numbers and the journal entries that they used and yeah. whatever mechanism they followed. But they they want to to create a story that sounds plausible and and to, to, in their minds defensible, right? And the, you know the reason I'm saying these things, Hernan, is for the internal auditors who will see this. The one thing I want you to realize is that while technologies change and and as a result, opportunities for fraud change, the underlying human behavioral characteristics remain very consistent. You know, that those don't change. Those those are the so same. Bill, on, the, on that note, Bill, what, what would you suggest people who are uh, contemplating uh, entering this field of fraud and forensics from a career perspective and what is the advice what kind of advice will you give them so that they can uh, build their career and, and and get their right footing as they build this well the the first thing I would tell them is uh, I've worked on a public corruption investigation years ago with the guy who's now the director of the FBI and there was a um, FBI agent named Oliver Halley, who worked on that investigation as well. And we successfully prosecuted the guy, and he went to uh, to prison. But Oliver <clears throat> um, developed a program that he called Corporate Scared Straight, where he um, would, uh, if, after he retired from the FBI, take people who had been convicted of white-collar crimes and have them talk about their crimes in front of, you know, uh, corporate corporate audiences to explain to them how they 
got involved in the crime and then the consequences of it. But he has he in his materials, he quotes from the the West Point Cadets Prayer. And the quote Mm -hmm. is, God, please give me the strength to make the hard right choice in favor of the easy wrong choice. And, and that's the first thing I would say, that nothing is more important than your reputation. So if you're mm-hmm. going to enter this career, realize that you're, you're going to be challenged. You know, people are going to challenge your findings, um, your investigative findings, and you're going to be put under pressure to uh, make that easy wrong choice. Don't do it. It's not worth it. So the um, courage to stand for what's right, integrity. Exactly. That's first. And then second, you know, trust everyone, but be skeptical, you know, verify. And and if something appears to be um, out of line, it often means that something has happened. So don't Mm -hmm. ignore anomalies. Don't don't, you know, write them off as, you know, some. Um, you know, minor thing that you don't have to pay attention to. Even if it's relatively small, make sure you understand what caused it. And I, and I, so I skepticism couldn't get... and Yeah, so being yeah, skeptical and, and, and also following your instinct to some extent. Now, question about certifications yes. and credentials. What credentials uh, do, would you recommend? And I know there are quite a few to choose from, but what are some thoughts? Well, I, you know, of course, I think the uh, Institute of Internal Auditors is critically important. And so that that credential is extraordinarily uh, important to be a yeah, you yeah, know, certified yeah. mm-hmm. internal auditor. Um, yeah. Other ones that I think are useful um, that, that are gaining some traction are the, um, I hope I get the initials right. I think it's CGMA. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, management. yeah, right. Management account, certified uh, management mm-hmm. account, certified management account, CMA. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think that's important because of the skill sets that are addressed, and then of course because of the um, the ways in which technology is exploding. I think it's it's important also to have, depending on your focus, appropriate credentialing. Credential, <laughs> easy for me to say, credentialing in. Um, <laughs> you know, in um, the audit of um, what we'll call electronic data, because it's, you know, it's such a broad area. And there are a variety of okay. credentials. It really depends on on what your, your focus ultimately is going to be. But I, I think that's important as well. You know, the, the one okay. thing I would say is, I don't think this comes up so much for uh, internal auditors, but if you were to more narrowly engage in um, fraud investigation and uh, we're, you know, going to make yourself available to be hired in that role where you would be potentially testifying in court. Uh, The CPA is valuable credential because it actually is a license that's issued by state governments. And so the courts pay a lot of attention to that for that reason. And then the other credential that's pretty widely recognized is the um, certified fraud examiner credential that's issued by the uh, CFE. You wrote a book, correct? As we're wrapping up, right? Is that correct? I did. 
the title of the book is Fraud Investigation, Forensic Accounting in the Real World. And, and my tagline for the book is, for everybody who's getting into this field, this is the textbook I wish I had had 40 years ago when I started. <laughs> All right. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Bill. It was a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you. You too, Fernand. Thank you.